Recording? Yeah, recording. This is Mom's Basement Podcast, episode 51. Actually recorded before episode 50 edition. (laughs) (sighs) Where Alex decides not to ask a question. Mm -hmm. Where we ask the question... Does Alex Swingle give a fuck anymore? Has he dropped the ball? Doesn't he care at all? Well, no, because usually the way it's set up is that uh, I pretty much have to ask a question on the fly because uh, the topic and the game itself is kind of foisted upon me uh, right Mm -hmm. at the last moment, and then I have to go like, oh shit, what kind of question am I going to ask this time? And then it's just, I don't know, let me just pull something out of my Yoohoo. Yoohoo. Mm, so, I mean, really, if we wanted to get to a question that we're going to answer, is is this game worth giving a question that we're going to answer? I think so. So, like I said, um, this is episode 51, but we're actually recording it not long after episode 49. Uh, we're, we want to do something special for our 50th episode. But you'll know um, what we did before this, <laughs> before this episode airs. So we were, we we're basically holding an empty spot on our schedule for episode 50. Mm-hmm. And we're going to figure out what we're going to do later. There's some talk of Mom's Basement Live or something. But anyway, not some talk, it's going to happen. It's going to fucking happen? It's yeah. going to happen. Well, you as the listeners will know whether or not it happens. So... Today we're going to be talking about Unwholesome Tenancy, which is um, R.P. Bowman? Bowman's? R.P. Bowman's game. Yeah, something like that. About Depression-era hobos fighting aliens. Mm. Or unraveling alien conspiracies. (laughs) Which is a pretty awesome premise for a game. And then we're going to use our second half an hour to talk about gaming texts and how your texts can improve your game or hinder your game. But before we jump into that, uh, does anyone have anything to say? Any personal announcements? Any plugs? Um, Misery Tourism, we just released another game today. Uh, Well, actually yesterday, because today is in the second. Right. Actually, maybe as much as a week or two ago by the time this airs. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> but we released it July 1st, so check it out. It's called Needs of the Few, and uh, it's basically about space madness and pedophilia. Space madness! Madness. <laughs> right. Okay, then. All I have to say is it's too fucking hot. It is. <laughs> it is insanely hot and here in the new apartment it is stifling so if i suddenly go quiet it's not because i've suddenly realized that i should be polite and let other people speak it's because i had suffered from heat stroke and died you know the end result is really the same (laughs) and also once again like booty said check out his game needs the few i've played it it's amazing i love it Okay, unwholesome tenancy. Yes. 
So, how do you want to start a discussion about this game? Like we said, it's hobos unraveling a conspiracy. It's basically Hobo X-Files, yeah. <laughs> I like to think of it. Okay. Uh, first of all, what an awesome premise. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because basically, I don't know, I love poverty and I love the X-Files. So if you can get <laughs> poverty and the X-Files together in one sleek little seven-page package, I mean, shit. Yeah. Hobo, fuck. I like the premise a lot, too. Because there's hobos, mostly. Right. Yeah, it's really hard to complain about hobos. I mean, yeah. I guess if they're living on your lawn or something. But... <laughs> if they're in your neighborhood, then right. yeah, maybe. I pretty much don't really... Uh, I mean, I personally didn't really care for the premise too much because I'm not a fan of hobos and their <laughs> ways. I've dealt with uh, too many hobos out on the streets, and um, it's not that fun. So hobos aren't exotic to you, because you've <laughs> had to deal with hobos. Well, you've had to deal with homeless people anyway. You find that they're not the hooch-drinking, uh, harmonica-playing, lovable rapscallions that we've been led to believe, but are instead uh, drug-addled schizophrenics. And uh, sex offenders. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> sex offenders. <laughs> but anyway, we might as well jump right into the, our critique of the game. So, where to start? Well, I guess we should start with a description of how the game actually functions. That might help, right? Mm-hmm. You want to swing that one, Rudy? Um, well, basically... There's four types of scenes, or well, there's four types of turns, they're called in this. Right. Um, and actually, the game starts out with a little thing that walks you through each one of them. Almost like a tutorial. Almost like a tutorial type bit. But uh, basically, there's refresh scenes where um, you kind of talk in character about the current situation, and you can... Um, do you pick up a trade in those scenes? No, those are in the peril scenes. Right, okay, right. You just and get your all of your abilities reset so that you have right. them back. Right. And, um, it, it uses cards to um, to symbolize something, but I didn't really understand the, the point of the cards. Yeah, I mean, I think the cards are supposed to be like hobo signs because they have symbols oh, on them. Right. Uh, right. I, I'm not... The cards, I think, ration your ability to use your um, useful and redeeming qualities, although I'm not entirely sure exactly how it rations it, since you can continue to generate them. Yeah. Anyway, there's uh, peril scenes, which are basically, you're in peril, you're in danger, and those can end with a cliffhanger. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, with whoever scores the lowest. Then you have temptation scenes, uh, where people in the cliffhanger roles, or well, people who had a cliffhanger, take on the roles of like background characters and, uh, you know, well, and the members of the conspiracy. The members of the conspiracy. I was going to say conspiratorial persons. Right. And, uh, 
they have something to offer the characters and the group, and uh, which I thought was really cool, by the yeah. way. Um, and then you have the full-on conspiracy scene where um, each player takes a role in the group that's, you know, that's causing the conspiracy or that's at the center of the conspiracy. And uh, you can basically choose whether or not to try to neutralize the threat or um, yeah. or uh, just let it kind of happen. <laughs> yeah. And the cool things about the conspiracy themes are that you talk about your primary characters in third person. Right. So you get one of those scenes where the cigarette-smoking man and the well-manicured man talk about what to do with Agent Mulder, you know? Right. And I'm going to, yes, I'm just going to keep making X-Files references throughout this whole episode. No, I mean, it basically is X-Files with homeless people. I mean, Yeah, and it's like the syndicate scenes in the X-Files. Right, right. The conspiracy scenes. So, yeah, that's pretty much the game. You've got those four basic types of scenes, and you cycle through them. And um, you have redeeming qualities which determine which can be given to you by other players and which you can give to yourself, too. There's a, this game has a very uh, specific system for um, handing them out, and which you basically use to avoid getting trapped in a cliffhanger mm-hmm. and potentially killed. Yeah. So they're the closest thing to, say, traits or attributes that the game has. Yeah. Okay, so... Uh, Let's uh, let's do what we've done in the past, and let's talk about the good, and then we can talk about what didn't work. Let's talk about the good. Alex, since you're such a positive human being, let's start it off with you. Well, I did like how in the, at least for the, when uh, somebody gets uh, screwed over in the beginning, that uh, afterwards they become the... Um, Pretty much the antagonist of playing like another uh, one of the alien creatures. That way, they have a purpose after mm. the fact instead of just sitting there, uh, you know, twiddling their thumbs. Yeah, yeah, that's something. The game definitely has a way to integrate people back into the game, even after their character gets trapped in a cliffhanger and possibly killed. So yeah, definitely that's true. Really? Oh, I like the way that the scenes switch back and forth mm. between uh, characters, so you get a chance to play like some of the background characters from the conspiracy. And then you get a chance to play your regular character, so really nothing gets old in that way. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think what else specifically I like about it. I do like the uh, the traits or what the um, the redeeming, redeeming qualities. qualities. Yeah. I thought that uh, the idea that the way you get them in the beginning is pretty mm-hmm. cool. Like, you have to mention one about, you know, another player. Right. And uh, that's kind of cool because it helps you. It gives you some agency to help build their character. Um, yeah, I think that there's a lot of things good here, especially with the premise and the way the game is set up yeah. structurally. Yeah, I I also really liked the actual scenes that are here. The four different types of scenes are extremely well chosen, I think, mm. um, and really get at the heart of the kind of story that he's trying to tell. The inclusion of conspiracy scenes, 
you know, which are really necessary if you're going to tell this kind of conspiracy story. You have to have those closed-door scenes, you know, where you see people talking in vague terms about what they're going to do and what they're plotting. And I like the fact that he even tells you in the book that you should keep it vague. You should keep it um, mysterious when they're talking those scenes. And I like the fact that... Um, that it has a few scenes where you can, uh, that it has a refresh scene so that it guarantees that there is some downtime for your characters to just be your characters, you know, and for you to do the character development stuff. Uh, I like the, the fact that the cliffhangers exist at all. I think they're cool. I think they're a cool thing to have in the game. Uh, the temptation scenes, as you said, also really cool, and they also really get at the heart of how this kind of narrative functions which is the idea that there's a conspiracy and they have so much power, right? And they have usually, yeah. like, ridiculous power, like like uh, almost a goofy level of power, even in something like The X-Files. And there's always someone who comes from the conspiracy and offers the main characters, you know, well, you can have a little bit of this power if you just work for us, you know. Agent Mulder, think of what I could do for you if you stop trying to, you know, pursue the truth. I think that's so the choice of different scenes here is as Robert Jordan would say choice choice I was just gonna say that <laughs> so I, I like that I like how cliffhangers escalate if someone gets trapped in a cliffhanger the other characters or excuse me the other players go back and forth framing increasingly ridiculous, well, increasingly tense, increasingly outlandish scenarios that that player has to narrate themselves out of. Right. So, um... And just from our experience, they got it got really ridiculous and awesome. Really fast. <laughs> and he does have optional rules that we didn't use for scale to keep them from getting too ridiculous too fast. Mm. But I, I enjoyed that, so I'm glad we didn't use the scale of rules. But the fact that um, the fact that you have that kind of improvisation and that back and forth, and that you have something that's always refreshing the ideas in that scenario, because I think when you just have one GM and one player, and a GM pitches something at the player, especially if you're going to do it completely through narrative, if you don't have any kind of... Uh, you know, any kind of dice or card mechanic that's designed to decide who wins. Right. I think that when you have the GM say, okay, this happens, and then the player say, oh, I do this in response, then the GM says, oh, well, this happens then. And you go back and forth, and it gets stale, and both players get trapped in a kind of cycle, and they get trapped by their own ideas. But having that second person taking that pseudo-GM role... So that the GM pitches something at the player, the player responds, and then the second GM comes in and totally changes the situation, or at least adds their own thing to the situation, which will often be something that the first GM wouldn't necessarily have thought of. And then the first GM has to come back and adjust their thinking to that, while keeping the same general scenario and while keeping things um, at least somewhat cohesive. <laughs> So I thought that was really cool. That was probably my favorite mechanic in the game. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to think if there are other things here that really... Uh, were there other things that really stuck out to you guys as being good 
here. It's being cool. I like the idea that basically you go around the table and give everybody a chance to uh, to get some input. Mm -hmm. the, the free play structure is really cool. I mean, you just kind of go around and everybody does their thing, and the scenes change so quickly, I guess, that they, uh, you know, you don't, it doesn't really have time to get stale or old. Right. So, and everybody gets some, some agency and some license to do stuff. Yeah, I agree with that. Okay, so, um, let's talk about some of the things in the game that could possibly be improved on. And this is obviously a pretty early draft of the game. Uh, that might be worth keeping in mind if you're listening. Um, Alex, want to start this off? It is confusing as heck. You want to elaborate, elaborate, sir? <laughs> I will elaborate. I just wanted to have that sink in for a moment. Okay. Because really, there is there is quite a few problems in the description of the game. Uh, and one of them is that there's this constant telling of how to break a tie to see who goes to the cliffhanger. And there's no actual oh. description on how that actually works. They say, it's it's written in the book, you know, in the PDF file, that the way you do it is by, um, by seeing who has the lowest score. But then there's right. no explanation of how you actually get the score. Right, how you actually um, tabulate the score, how the scoring system works is left basically for the players to figure out. And that needs to be a lot more concrete, because that really tripped us up a few times. And we spent, in what should be a pretty fast-paced game, it ground a, a halt more than once while we tried to figure out exactly how the scoring system should function in this situation. Yeah. I'm also not totally... While we're talking about scoring i'm also not totally sure that the mechanics for determining who goes into a um who goes into a cliffhanger really function particularly well at all uh the, basically the way if we figured the scoring system out correctly the person who has the fewest redeeming qualities ends up in the cliffhanger right the problem is that the redeeming qualities are basically just arbitrarily given to you by other players. You get to pick one. In each peril scene, you get to pick one for yourself. But beyond that, the other players hand them out to you. And there's not really any explanation in the rules about how and when they should do so. You know, what's a good excuse to give someone a redeeming quality? Is it based on how they're role-playing? Or do you actually come up with the idea, give it to them, and then they role play based on what you've told them? Like, let's say, Rudy's redeeming quality, one of them was, um, oh, what was it? Uh, something about starting how to, a, how to start a trash fire. Yeah, he's really good at starting trash fires, since he is a hobo, after all. Uh, and the question would be, now, would you get that redeeming quality because you make a trash fire in the game, and the other players, you role-play making a trash fire, and one of the other players say, yeah, that's a really cool idea, you must be really good at making trash fires, let me give you that as a redeeming quality. Or is it one of the players say, you know, the players go back and forth giving each other redeeming qualities, and one of them says, you're really good at starting trash fires, 
and then after that, Rudy would play out starting trash fires. We, the way we played was the latter way. I think the game would function a lot better if it was the former, where you give them their redeeming qualities based on how they will play, as opposed to handing it to them and then expecting them to role play in response. Um, because the first one is at least less less arbitrary, but both have the possibility uh, of being very arbitrary and very... Um, well, you have a major thing in the game, which is who goes into a cliffhanger, which is basically who dies, contingent yeah. on something that's um, very hard to nail down in play. It's very hard to uh, hard to strategize for on one hand, and also very uh, seemingly random and arbitrary on the other. Like someone basically points at you and says, oh, I'll give you a redeeming quality. And... Players, so on one hand, it could be totally random and with people falling into cliffhanger for no apparent reason or feeling like they've been condemned to a cliffhanger for no apparent reason. Or you could fall into a fairness trap where everyone kind of feels like they need to spread the love around evenly, which will unfortunately probably result in a lot of ties. And if everyone ties, then everyone dies, according to the rules of the game. Yeah. And that's that could really stop a game dead. So basically, either you have to make a calculated decision to deny someone redeeming qualities, or they have to basically say, I'm not going to behave in a way that will get me redeeming qualities. You know, I'm not going to compete. Right. Or you're going to have a, a potential situation where it... Um, where, where you end up with it seeming either totally out of the blue, this person falls into the cliffhanger, or totally, uh, or the game stops, the game ends. <laughs> right. And I, when you when you're constructing those kind of totally social mechanics, you have to think a lot about strategy and fairness. I think those two things have to be at the forefront, and also purposefulness. And I don't think that this mechanic really passes those particular tests. I think um, more could be done to really get back and forth going and to have people feel like there's a concrete, tangible way for them to earn these redeeming qualities. Well, um, one of the things I see is a potential problem, and it may not necessarily be a problem for all groups, um, is basically this game sets up the world and the atmosphere you know, really well. It's pretty dead on as far as, you know, you know what kind of game it is, but it doesn't really set a tone with that. Yeah. And um, I don't know, like, how serious or how, you know, not serious to take it. And uh, as we, as I said before, we kind of, we yeah. really jumped the shark on, on our playtest. So, uh, but I'm not sure if, it would be better to have something there that said, well, okay, decide on a tone with your group beforehand. Or, you know, something something maybe that could walk you through that process of deciding on, you know, a tone for the game. You know, do you want it to be serious or do you want it to be more goofy? Because, I mean, it's hobos fighting aliens. I mean, right. it's, it's going to be crazy. But, I mean, I just wasn't sure how goofy and whatever it should be. 
as opposed to, you know, somewhat serious. Mm. I think just a, just a paragraph or so about tone would be, you know, nice. How, how to decide tone right. for the group. Alex, Rudy, anything else? Oh, let's see here. Um, <laughs> Alex has a list. <laughs> <laughs> and he's checking it twice. All right, well, there was a little bit of pretentiousness going on there. I love saying that word again, time and time again. Um, basically, uh, actually, he might have changed it from the draft version, but uh, when he put... Oh, yeah, no, it's still there. The materials of what you need to play this game. And the first one on the list was some creative imagination. That fills the mood with such rage that um, it, uh, it it definitely skewed how I was going to play it because as opposed to just imagination. Yes, or or, or even including that at all because I think that's yeah. kind of um, a no shit comment. Like a uh, oh you're going to play an RPG, you don't need to bring your imagination whatsoever, and um, you know. Just talk about, like, you know, your card collection. Just talk about, you know, like, what music you like. Don't even bother getting to the character. Just, just you know, just go. <laughs> so, yeah, that that was one uh, negative thing. I, I really didn't like that. I know that, that's nitpicking, but that's, like, that's some, like, what the fuck kind of nitpicking. Right. And, um, and then after that, I, I really didn't like um, the style of, um, of, of, of intro for the game because it's supposed to be a you're supposed to uh, play the game as you uh, you learn the rules as you play in, in you know in quotes, but uh, the problem with that is because of the way it's currently set up, there are quite mm-hmm. a few rules in the game that are not directly linked inside the uh, description of how you play. Yeah. So because of that, you have to actually read the book beforehand in order to actually know the rules, but usually these styles of games are used to teach people how to play uh, first. And then, you know, later on they can master it and not have to need the intro to begin with. Right. I mean, I like the idea of the tutorial that teaches you to play as you play. The problem is with this particular tutorial. Okay, if this was a video game tutorial it would have moments where the rules are on the screen and then it says, okay, do this, you know? Press B. Uh, there'd be breaks, you know, exactly, where you press B, you press A, swing your sword, you know, move, you know, move the analog stick or whatever in order to move. And this particular script is missing those moments. It would be nice if the script had... With it, it basically, you read a chunk of text describing one type of scene, and then you're expected to play that type of scene. Uh, but the problem is that by the time you get to the end of the chunk of text for that scene, um, conceptually, you're at the end of the scene. <laughs> you know, you're thinking about how the scene ends, as opposed to thinking about how the scene started, and how the scene should start. And I think it would be nice if the if it was formatted in such a way where you had mid-scene breaks, where it's like, okay, let me tell you exactly how to role-play the beginning of this scene. Now here's a break where you should be role-playing it. You know, for the uh, refresh scenes, you know, he talks about having a conversation with the other players. If there was then a break 
you know, where you would have that conversation. You know, the person who's reading the script stops reading, and you play, role play, and then he picks up and reads, like, about handing out the cards. And then you hand out the cards, and then there's a break for role-playing and so on. And this would be especially useful in the peril scenes, because you read the whole block of text, and you're already at the cliffhanger, and you don't even know when and how you're supposed to insert the stuff that comes before the cliffhanger, the, uh, and how you're supposed to actually integrate getting um, your redeeming qualities in play, earning them or not earning them. Like I mentioned before, that's very murky, and it's made more murky by the fact that the, that the, that the um, script for peril scenes is one big chunk of text that tries to explain it all. And that doesn't stop and let you play through it. You know, the pretense of his pedagogy of play is that you are learn playing as you learn and learning as you play. The problem is that as it's currently formatted, it's learn, play, learn, play, learn, play, you know, as opposed to the two being um, integrated, really integrated, really working and functioning together. So that... So I think a lot could be done for that. Another thing I would suggest, and I'm basing this on uh, Nick Wedding's game House of Masks, which he posted on um, Prototype, or little game design forum. That actually has a similar mechanic to this, where player the players read a script that explains the game to them before they play. And I, I really think it works wonderfully in House of Masks. And one thing Nick Wedding does is he has the person who's reading switch off. You know, it transfers over yeah. um, from one player to another to another. And I think having that back and forth, so it's not just one person reading a chunk of text, and then you play, and then that same person goes back and reads a chunk of text again. I think you get a real flow going on, and you get less uh, people doing what both Alex and I did which is reading through the text quickly just to get through it and garbling it and offering, you know, and fucking it up. Yeah. Rudy? Um, that's pretty much all I have to say. Yeah. I do have one more kind of editorial point. Uh, well, a bigger point is that a lot of the issues with this game are a function of the text as opposed to necessarily being a function of design. There's a lot of things, as we've mentioned, that are omitted or not fully explained, or, or you know, or they're ambiguous. Uh, and another editorial issue is you, the entire first page of this game, or almost the entire first game of the page of this game, has no content on it. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed that, but it's. Uh, he offers an introduction of uh, the philosophy behind his game design. He offers uh, a talk about endgame, which basically says there is no endgame. <laughs> and he talks about how to contact him to tell you about the game. He offers a list of what you need, will need, which is the only really useful thing on that first page. But a lot of it is, let me tell you about why I wrote this game, which is Fine, I think, which is which is good. If your game manual is long, you know, if you if someone has already invested in buying a manual from you, but if you have a seven-page playtest document, 
you want to hook people as soon as possible with the premise of your game. And the current organization doesn't do that. You want to really jump right into hobos fighting aliens, you know. You want to do that from the start. And you want to get people really invested in the hook. And you don't want to go into pedagogy of play and theoretical things that make people say, well, where's the game here, you know. So I would almost just take all that out, start with your pitch, then move to what you need to play, move the end game thing to the very end of the manual where it belongs, and if you need to include the pedagogy of play stuff, add a note section to the end that kind of explains, justifies the decisions you've made, the design decisions. It's not something you need to do up front, and you might lose people who begin to look at your game and don't immediately get what you're trying to do with it. That's what I would say about that. So, any final thoughts on unwholesome tenancy, Alex? It it has some promise uh, in terms of like what I've been what I saw for some of the uh, rules. I would like um, I would like less freeform with this kind of game mm. because if you were able to have the you know ability to listen to the playtest. It got very wonky, very squirrely at the very end because um, basically we're allowed to be crazy all the time and it was there was no grounding upon our actions. It was just, all right, let's just keep uh, dancing right here. And then it's like, okay, are we bored now? Yeah, we're bored. We'll, we'll stop now. Versus like having an actual uh, momentum uh, cause the scene to want to like be on a cliffhanger or... Or anything like that. There's a lot of the drive is on the players, not the actual uh, system itself. Yeah, that's true. He does include the scope rules to try to um, to try to control that, but the problem is that, like some other things in the text, the scope rules are not laid out very clearly. They're not very easy to understand. Rudy, final thoughts. Um, basically, hobos. Fighting aliens is an awesome concept, and I like it a lot. Um, as far as the manual, I'd say just, uh, you know, put, like Hank said, put some breaks in there, you know, from where some transitions from where it's teaching you about the game to, you know, okay, here's the role-playing section. It's, that wasn't always, you know, 100% clear. But other than that, um, I had fun with it. it it looks like a good premise and a good, uh, a pretty good deal. So, yeah. My final thought on unwholesome tenancy is the title is really cool, but I don't have the slightest fucking idea what it means. <laughs> I mean, I know what unwholesome means, and I know what tenancy means, but I don't understand what the two words mean together. It sounds almost like it's about demonic. It's either about demonic possession, or it's about living in a really filthy tenement building. <laughs> you know, maybe one that also doubles as a crack house and den of prostitution or something. You know, initially I thought the title was Unwholesome Tenacity, which would make a little more sense to me, but... Anyway. Yeah. But, yeah, as Rudy said, fucking kick-ass premise. So, now, we're going to transition to talking about games as texts. 
and there's a lot of ways that we can um, how we can go about this. A lot of ways we can tackle this topic. And in fact, in the jargon episode, which was the same episode we talked about oceans, we talked a little bit about how we dislike um, dislike games that are written artistically in a way that obstructs text. So I don't think we need to go too deep into that. There was a lot of talk about atmospheric content then and when it's right and wrong to do that. Mm-hmm. So you might want to look back at, what was that, Alex, episode 36? Uh, I want to say 30, it's either 33 or 34. Okay, 30, I think it's 30, I, I'm not even going to guess, 33 or 34, which is oceans and jargon, where we talk a little bit about that. So what, what do we want to tackle here? Games as text, or the game text? Well, one thing we can discuss is the um, organization of the mm. uh, the text because um, just like some people have trouble with D and D, the order in which the text is laid out to you can affect the game uh, tremendously. Yeah. I mean, I believe, and this is nothing novel or amazing, but a go- good rule of thumb is that structure mirrors play. <laughs> you know, the game is. Struck, you read the game in the same order and in the same fashion that you would play it. Mm-hmm. Can you, uh, you know, go further in detail about that one? Well, I can say that that becomes more and more difficult to do the more complex your game is. Because, okay, so in a very simple game, you can walk it through, like, okay, premise, setting creation, character creation, play, basically, end game. But when you have a game like, well, you know, D&D is a universal example, but D&D or GURPS or even White Wolf, where character creation involves adjusting a whole bunch of little knobs, you know, little um, mechanical bits, you know, like, okay, well, I need to pick my feats and I need to pick my traits. I need to pick my skills. You need to know what each of those things is and you need to have a good understanding of them before you can fully understand the section you just read on character creation that told you you need to pick all of those things. Right. And if each of those things requires a chapter in and of itself, then organization can become a hassle. Yeah, I'd, I'd pretty much agree with that, that the way the manual is laid out should mirror the way the game is actually played. Because I think a big obstacle for people in getting into new games is, you know, you have to read the whole fucking manual. And if it's, especially if it's a really long manual, um, you want to make sure that people are are getting something out of, like, each, each component, each section of it, getting something they feel is tangible, you know, that they can take and use in the game. And I feel a lot of manuals, like D&D, uh, don't necessarily do that. Um, well, how do they fail to do that? Well, D&D, basically you're given a bunch of stuff that you can... You're given a bunch of sections that are broken down that don't really have anything to do with each other. Right. So you can't go through it and play. And, you know, it's not front to back. You know, you read it front to back and it's over. You know, And you can get... Once you get an understanding of how to start play, 
basically the only thing you need the manual for is reference. Mm. And uh, there's a lot of reference to do. <laughs> so, um, right. and that's, that basically gets really tedious and really, uh, really kind of tiresome there. Um, but D&D is a, a primary example. But White Wolf, like you said, is another one where um, basically you have a bunch of like mechanical jargon that you won't really understand on your first read-through. Right. And then you have all the flavor shit, like plans and the houses and all of that stuff that would that you know is going to influence how you pick your character and how you play your character. But it's not until like the middle of the book. Right. So, and also those two things aren't integrated very well. <laughs> right. And that's right. what it comes down to, you know. You you have a sense of you know what kind of voice you're going to use when you put your funny hat on. And you have a sense of what you're doing when you're rolling the dice. But they don't necessarily give you a sense of how those things work together in the game. And often because they don't. <laughs> yeah. Well, let, let me ask this, and let's go around the table. First, which of all of the game texts that you've read, which one do you think was best? Which one did you enjoy the most? Did you feel best represented the game, best made best prepared you to play the game and we'll go around and do that and then there's the obvious question that follows you know what's an example of a game that really fucked this shit up and did a terrible job of it and maybe those examples will help to illuminate you know what makes a game text functional and fun to read and uh, what makes one garbage so Alex all right. Well, the one game that I that uh, that spoke to me the most about uh, organization is uh, <laughs> it's gonna be funny because it's not an actual role playing game in in the sense of uh, tabletop. It's a computer role playing game, and it is called Arcanum of Steamwork in Magic Obscura. Oh man, Arcanum! I remember that. And um, basically, the thing that I loved about it the most is if you actually read the uh, the book that came with the game, from start to finish, it told you everything in sequence to the point where it, there was almost no confusion whatsoever. For example, the first two pages told you a you know a, a quick review of what happens at the beginning of the game. You're you know you get attacked uh, when you're on a blimp, you crash, and there you go right from the start of it. Then it starts from different races, because that's what you choose for your character creations, which race you pick, followed by their bonuses attached to each race. It's not like it's not attached to like an index at the very end of the book. It's just right there, race, troll, plus this, plus that for your bonus. So it was very easy to understand. And um after that it told you like, you know, pick your blah blah blah, all that kind of stuff, inventory. From beginning to end, it was very seamless on how on everything you needed to know to actually start it, which in, made me so excited to actually play the game because I actually knew what the game was about. So there you go. I actually still have the book. It's beyond awesome. I I keep it just you know just because of how great it is. Ready? Well, I'd say that uh, I don't really know what the best one. I've read is, 
But probably my favorite one, and this is going to be strange because I complained about it earlier, is D&D. I was going to do the same fucking thing, you know? Yeah, because if manuals were basically... If, if the most important thing about the manual is to make a hook mm. you know, for the game, to sell the game to you, something to give to new players to basically make them want to play at the table, then D&D is fucking great for it, especially 2nd and 3rd edition. Because... Uh, you know, you've, you've got basically things right at your fingertips that you can think are cool. You know, that you yeah. can really cool shit. Like, you have, like, it breaks down the classes in such a way that, you know, it makes you want to play. It, it, it lets you hone in easily on what you want to play. Because it easily, it tells you, you know, what each of the classes' features are and even if you don't understand the mechanical bits, you can get a sense of what the class does mm-hmm. and what uh you know how it's gonna play. Um, and also there's the artwork, which you know is really great, and that that's a big part of layout too. I mean the eye catching stuff, the fact that uh one another game that does it really well I think is Apocalypse World, where they have uh, and and the mini Apocalypse World hacks, which uh. <laughs> which have the kind of silhouetted, you know, blacked-out artwork. Um, and it it also they also do a good job of, uh, of basically giving you a whole bunch of options that are really cool to start with. And, you know, I haven't played, I haven't gotten a chance, I, I have a copy of Apocalypse World, but I haven't gotten a chance to play it. But I did look at the manual, and I can already tell basically what class I would play. I would probably play Hardholder. And uh, that's just because of the flavor of the class and the abilities, the way it's laid out, it's it's almost like um, it's almost like you can read the abilities and tell what the class will do without really reading the rest of the manual. Right. And that or get a sense of what you know, if you've played a role playing game before, you can get a sense of what the class is gonna do and what you know, everything, how everything is going to be. Um, and I think that's, it's really important for hooking people into a game that you don't have a bland manual. Or that if you do have a bland manual, you can get the bland shit out of the way really quick. And then you, you can get to the options. Because the options are really where people, you know, where the magic happens, I think. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah, absolutely, the options. I mean, and you didn't mention it explicitly, but I think the one thing that really D&D's saving grace in terms of, of uh, books was the monster manual. Yeah. The monster manual just, you looked at that and you were inspired to play the game. You wanted desperately to play the game, just leaping through the monster manual. Because every single entry there was a potential adventure was a it was a whole session potentially in and of itself it was multiple sessions in and of itself right. and that's really amazing when you can have that much inspirational content in one well not so little book one book <laughs> one 200 300 page book i don't have a single example i've been trying to think of a single good example I'm trying to think of what text, you know, authoritative text here. 
Um, one thing we've all been talking about uh, more mainstream conventional RPGs, even Apocalypse World, which is indie, is still a very, uh, tra very traditional in a lot of ways. Um, I, I wish I could think of some indie manuals for short, quick play games or whatever that really do it right. I will say once again to bring up a game I mentioned before, House of Masks really seems to do it right with the you choose characters as you read the script the script and you learn everything you need to know by moving through um, by going from player to player character to character in this little pre-written script and each section of text in the script is kept just the right length just the right length for someone to read without getting bored or distracted and still convey everything you need to know. I think that is a really fantastically written game, but I haven't played it yet, so I can't really say... You know, you can look at a text and say, oh, that looks like it really tells you what you need to play, and then you sit down to play the game, and you're just fucking fused. Um, and you find out that all sorts of things that you really needed were omitted, but just you know, from superficial glance alone, House of Mass really does a great job at it. Oh. Jeep form games tend to, too. Jeep form games are very good at giving, in an economical way, explaining everything you need to know to play. Although a lot of Jeep form games also sort of lean heavily on assuming that you read, you know, the Jeep manifesto on Jeep and, <laughs> you know, dot org. Yeah. And that you um, that you understand the philosophy of the game, and that you have a general understanding of what the, you know, how a jeep is played, because they don't spend much time really laying that out in individual jeep games. So that's one thing. But in terms of giving you everything you need to know to play, or everything you that you'd want to inspire play, really laying out what the scenes are, what the content of the game is. Jeep form games do a very good job of doing that in a very short space. So my answer is, I guess, my answer is no single game that I've actually played has done it 100% right. Indie games tend to be better in terms of, of keeping their rules simple and economical and, and having, once again, text mirror play. The bigger trade games tend to be better at inspiring play through their manuals. Really inspiring play, not giving you a bunch of atmospheric bullshit. Yeah. You know, giving you what feel like options, what feel like real possibilities for play. Not like you should feel this way as you play. Here are all, instead, here's this whole spectrum of things you can do in play. Don't you want to do it? Uh, Large print run games, the games from the big name companies, tend to do that better than indie games do. Yeah. So, um, bad examples. Alex, I'm sure you'll have a field day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm only allowed to pick one, am I? Uh, well, you heard me ramble. I didn't even pick one, so well, yeah, the rules are flexible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, basically, um, any book that requ 
requires you to flip back and forth through each section um, instead of streamlining it to where everything can be done one section at a time. I do not like any of those game books, those those layouts. D&D does this to some extent, but that's because um, you have to make, get your facts right when it comes to um, you know putting your character out to you know, out to pasture. If a lot of the stats were not included on the on the on the weapons, like as in like um, instead of uh, like a dagger doing one d four, if it just did one damage, and if a short sword just did two damage, you know, it's very simple ideas. If it just did that, you would never need to go back and forth throughout the book. Um, but any system, any game that pretty much forces you to go back and forth uh, throughout the text, uh, that is usually a bad book design. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's, do you have an example of this? I mean, what are some of the worst cases of this? Worst case would be fudge. Well, I know I mentioned D&D, and, you know, uh, the White Wolf games, pretty much every single one of them does that. Um, shoot. I mean, in terms of, like, an actual title, I'll have to actually think about that one, because there are so many to choose from, way too many games to choose from. I'm surprised you didn't say GURPS, considering how much you bitched about <laughs> GURPS previously. Oh yeah, I, I, well, the thing is, though, I hate it so much, it's forgetful. Oh, um, I see. It, it, it doesn't, it doesn't give me that much of a, you know, of a power trip passion because it's a broken system that, uh, basically encourages GM fiat, which is a piece of shit rule. Um, you know, there, there's some bitter anger if you can uh, tell from. I, I can tell that. I can tell that. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell it the last time it was brought up. <laughs> but but yeah, uh, but but that's a whole other subject. GM fiat. Um, in terms of uh, what I hate about that. Yeah, I think we could definitely have a whole half an hour discussion about that someday. Actually, you know what we should do? Every episode, we should talk when we describe our topics. We should bring up something that say and say, yeah, we should totally talk about that next time. <laughs> And then not talk about it. Yeah, anyways. Um, so yeah, all those kind of games where I, I really hate the back and forth of um, when it comes to character, cre- especially character creation, because that's the thing that all your players are going to spend the most time on, and you shouldn't spend two hours designing a character when it should really take you less than half an hour at best because of the back and forth trying to find everything. That's true. Rudy? Uh, I'm going to have to say D&D again. <laughs> the best uh, and the worst. The best and the worst, yeah. Bittersweet. Yep. Uh, basically because D&D creates a situation with its manual where you have to go back and reference the manual a lot during fucking play, and I think that's really annoying. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's great it, for the monster manual where it's something that you can say, oh, well, here's what you're fighting, and, like, show the players. But it's not so great, you know, when somebody spends 20 minutes looking up spells and trying to choose which one to to fire off, you know. Right. And right. a turn and makes turns take, you know, 15 to 20 minutes. Um, but yeah, I think D and D it really encourages a lot of it, it encourages hanging on the rules too much, and it encourages basically making the manual sacred in some ways, like uh. Well, yeah, go on. Well, I mean, it, it basically, like, because character creation and stuff is so centered around, you know, compartmentalized parts in the manual. Right. It really makes it difficult to kind of 
I guess, divorce yourself from that in play. And, you know, it makes it difficult to sometimes get anything done in play when you have, uh, you know, when you have, like, a lot of people with spellcasters and stuff like that, is they have to keep constantly referencing the manual. And then because of that, you start to reference the manual for other things that maybe you don't need to, like uh, little rules minutia and shit like that. Yeah. So yeah. And that's that's a problem with the NBA. The only thing I was going to say was that a lot of that is often because people don't respect not even the first rule of D&D, a rule that comes <laughs> before the first rule, rule zero. Yeah. And I think if people had more respect for rule zero, you'd have fewer of those instances. But I totally agree that in some ways the structure of the manual encourages people to go leafing through it and play and install play. So my choice isn't going to surprise anyone. I, I'm i going to say pretty much anything White Wolf. Uh-oh. I think that White Wolf games, and I've said this before, are a real example, perhaps the archetypal example, of a manual that does everything it can do to make you not want to play a game that you want to play. Yeah. I mean... Between the really corny setting content and the really um, almost dictatorial way that it lays out for people to play the game, or that it seems to imply pe- that people should be approaching the game, you know, in terms of how authoritative the content in the manual is supposed to be, and the way it lays out character creation and with all the bits that don't really necessarily even have to come into play, but are there to be distractions, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and um, it basically, it would be as if it has, it, it has all of the bad parts of D&D in terms of encouraging people to go back to the book, except it'd be like, if whenever someone did that, whenever someone said, well, no, I need to look in the player's handbook and find out, you know how this functions. They turn the pages, and every page was blank, and they were just encouraged to <laughs> make up what was on it, you know? <laughs> because, which is the worst of both worlds, really, because there's the illusion that there's something authoritative about the text. But there's also actually nothing authoritative in the text. There's, or there's nothing really solid that you can latch onto. Those are really, really bad examples but i'm not going to let you guys totally off the hook here because what we just did we just took the the easy way out of this we just mentioned three big press games and you know the ghost of gary gygax isn't going to come back and haunt us for shitting on D, you know we didn't mention any indie games well bad manuals. well once again um i said this before and i'll say it again and when when I see that there's an indie game worth talking about as shit, I will talk about it. <laughs> so you're just totally dismissive then. When when it comes to the indie side of games, yes. I know it's very inflammatory to say that. I am still waiting for there to be an actually good game that's been developed on the indie side. In terms of actually published and recommended by people. Because the bulk of them that I've actually read are not 
up to um, my super high standards as the anti-hipster hipster. Mm-hmm. Now, um, there seems to be a general accepted belief that Apocalypse World is that game. And I don't want to have that discussion now. I don't really believe that. But then again, I don't really believe what you're saying. Well, I don't really agree with what you're saying, Alex, about there not being any... I think there are a lot of really good, small games. I think that maybe the indie community hasn't produced its big game yet. And maybe it shouldn't, because maybe there's something fundamentally dysfunctional about those big games but 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 anyway um so alex i can't really i can't really criticize you for not picking one since you said something that was far more hurtful and inflammatory than just picking a game so i'll let you go uh booty yeah um i'm just gonna flat out say uh um, I'm trying to think of the name now. It is a game by Sharia Sampat. Yeah, uh, uh, oh, uh, the Wuxia game. That was going to yeah, be my Wuxia example, game. too. I right, can't believe yeah. uh, Mistrobe Gate. Mistrobe Gate, that's the name. Um, basically, where half of the manual is about atmosphere and uh, tea, I guess. What to <laughs> eat at the table. What to eat at the table. The other half of the manual is really good. Which, uh, I don't really understand how that... I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, to me, for a lot of indie games, there's not a lot of bad manuals. It's more mm. the content of the game. <laughs> but, uh, but there there are some that, you know, I didn't have a problem reading Apocalypse World. I, I know a lot of people bitch about that. But that was one that I didn't really necessarily, I guess, spend too much time trying to figure out. It was It was just pretty smooth and... It seemed it, it felt like I could run the game after I read the manual. It honestly feels like that. I mean, um, another one might be, and I like this game, but uh, Robert Bowles' Misspent Youth. Um, the manual is really good, um, but I guess on it's it's really bad to to run it on. Um, like PDF readers or anything like that. And I have, I'm just going to say that I have the iBleed edition. I didn't actually buy the game. And I think it's called the iBleed edition for a reason. <laughs> right. But uh, just the way the pictures and stuff are overlaid, and, and a lot of indie manuals do this. I'm not going to, you know, kick Robert Bull all day. I mean, a, a lot of the ways the pictures are overlaid are just kind of really obnoxious and, you know, well, not obnoxious, but distracting i guess yeah and uh it really does make your eyes bleed the eye bleed but a really good game and a lot of jeep forums do that to the nth degree (laughs) where you have some kind of background on the back of the pdf right (laughs) you know it looks like someone googled image google Google image searched for some 19 you know windows 95 desktop background and used it as a background for their page and then stuck the text on top of it and i mean there's something charming about that uh in some ways especially when it's obviously you know with jeep forum everything is the production values tend to be very low yeah and in some ways it adds to the games there's something somehow it almost adds to the voyeuristic quality that a lot of those jeep forum games have where you almost feel like, you know, you're peering into someone else's life. 
and having the manuals be kind of shoddy looking, look like something that someone kind of threw together adds to that voyeur. It's almost like picking up someone's diaries and diary and while reading about, you know, their crushes or whatever, seeing the stupid little doodles that they put in the, <laughs> in the, um, margins. Uh, oh, but yeah, in terms of, if you're talking about production values, I think there's something to be said for it. If you can't afford it, don't try to do it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think there's something wonderful about just text on a black text on a white page that's organized and that's spaced well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's incredibly readable. Yeah, but Mistral Gate. <laughs> I hate to kick on that poor fucking game so much, but it I mean, when, when half of the game is like talking about, you know, what to bring for food and that kind of shit, that just, it just is excessive, I think. I think it gets down to, and I know we've kind of touched on this before, I think there's a difference between what people think inspire play and what stuff does inspire play. Right. You know? What you're eating at the table, and I mean, other people, you know, your your experiences may be different than mine, but what you're eating at the table, for me, doesn't inspire play. What you're wearing at the table doesn't do much to inspire play. What you, how you, the kind of mind frame you want to get yourself in, that doesn't do it. You know, reading a text that reads like you're going to talk in the game doesn't do it for me. What inspires play for me is seeing a lot of cool possibilities presented there in the manual. And even if they're presented in the driest possible way, even if they're a bunch of stat boxes for monsters with a little bit of that, you know, something about just being able to leaf through something and say, oh, I could do something with that, 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 and I could do something with it within the world of the game. I could do something with it in character, in game. Does so much more to inspire me than picking an authentic tea set. Yeah. Uh, and it's not just Miss Girl Gate that does it. Miss Girl yeah, a lot of indie manuals do it. I mean, do it. Yeah. There's a lot of um, a lot of time spent at the beginning of the games talking about inspiration. Talking about watch these here's some movies and books and stuff to read, mm. which I think is fine if you, like read this stuff to find ideas. But two things really: number one, put that at the back of your manual, not the front front of your manual. Let your game tell itself, and then tell tell us what movies inspired you to make it. <laughs> you know, don't try to sell your game on someone else on the on the basis of someone else's creative work. Sell it on the basis of the game you've created. And D&D is as guilty of doing that as anything else. Because it's all, uh, you know, it's all in some ways uh, appropriated. It's all stolen. But number two, uh, fuck. (laughs) Uh, What was I going to say? Um, I was going to say something about... Having those lists of inspirational things in. Okay. Oh, don't use it as a crutch 
don't use it as a replacement for coming up with your own options and suggestions for play and right. possibilities for play. Don't say, go read this comic book and it will give you ideas of what you might want to include in the game. Put that right. in the game. Right. You know, don't say, go watch this movie and it'll tell you how, you know, and it yeah. Wait, wait. Um, how much did you get? Did you get everything I said, or was I cut off mid-sentence? I think you were cut off mid-sentence. As soon as you said in number two. Oh, really? That soon? Yeah. Oh. Well, my second point was that you don't want to use... Don't use the suggestions, the inspirational, like, back it up, okay. Don't use your list of inspirational works as an excuse not to have actual inter inspirational options and ideas in there in the game's text itself. It shouldn't be, go read a Frank Miller, um, <laughs> you know, graphic novel so that you know how to play my, so that you get some ideas for how to play my gritty my gritty superhero RPG. It should be, here's a whole bunch of options, here's a whole bunch of ideas, here's some possibilities for how to play it. And no, um, you, you know, no supplemental materials are necessary. And certainly not supplemental materials written by someone else. So don't use that as a crutch. Don't say, this is a game designed to simulate this book, now go read that book and play my game. Because really, in that instance, you are heavily weighting the value of your game and the creative content of your work on someone else's work. So what you're saying is um, Burning Wheel, Burning Empires, um, let's see here, Dresden Files, RPG, a lot of those games are just shit because of that. No, I, I mean... I know you're not saying that. I know you're not saying that. Obviously, licensed games are kind of an exception. Although they should be playable outside of the manual for someone who hasn't read the licensed material, hasn't read the material that it's based on. But a lot of games are wannabe licensed games. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's kind of a drain on the community in some ways. Oh, and um, last thing I wanted to say, because I think we're pretty much done here. Uh, you know, we all set our pieces. When I said that uh, bit about indie games in terms of like I haven't seen really anything, you know, great come from the indie side, is that all the ones that I have the opportunity to have read, I personally would not be proud owning those games. And a game that's great to me is something that I would constantly recommend and highlight to people. Like mm. the games that I have that are even considerable indie games were um, two fudge games. And even that, I just love it for the titles of the games and the premise of them, not how it actually plays. Like, uh, one game that I, I love so much because I love the idea of saying, let's play this game, is Heart Quest. Mm. And on the cover of it is pretty much three people dressed up like Sailor Moon characters. <laughs> so you know exactly what it is. It's all kinds of awesome, just the premise alone, and the fact that it's called Heart Quest. But mechanically, <laughs> actually playing the game is not that fun at all, and uh -huh. so that's that's why I was saying, when it comes to when it comes to the indie games, I don't, I can't label any of them as bad or a good as in like the worst of the worst because I have not found one that um, is all kinds of lead awesome to play 
and you know I'm not proud enough to show off those games to random strangers. Okay. Yeah. Rudy, any final thoughts? Um. Well, that heart explosion game basically makes me want to buy panty explosion. <laughs> but yeah, that's about it. Well, while we're talking about games that we really should have bought already but haven't for some reason, Funkadelic Frankenstein, a oh, yeah. monster exploitation game for 99 cents. Zercher from Story Games showed it to me. I haven't bought it yet because I am just that stingy that I need to think a little bit about 99 cents. But I'm going to buy it. I'm going to buy it. I can I'm send gonna... it to you as a gift because uh, I have like 20 cans I need to go uh, cycle. <laughs> Uh, but yeah one way or another I'm going to get that game and play it because (laughs) monster exploitation what an awesome idea I mean I I read that thing and I don't I don't like the D20 system itself that they use but the the book as uh, inspirational material will probably be worth a dollar yeah that's what I think I'm a little worried about the system but whatever yeah okay so that was Mom's Basement Podcast, episode 51. Mike coming out? Nope. Sure, why not? I mean... Yeah, fuck times. it. It's late, yeah. yeah. Fuck them. <laughs> Don't fuck them. Uh, you know, massage them, you know, you know romantically. Um, oh, I'm not a player, I just fuck a lot. Okay. Uh, so yeah, with that out of the way, you know, go Misery Tourism Games, download and needs of the few, you're gonna love it. Especially oh, yeah. Thanks for when you when you read it, you know, it's going to be all kinds of wicked awesome. The idea of space pedophilia. Um, <laughs> Sold. Exactly, and uh, it's just it's more than that. That's not even that's not even the main subject. It's you know kind of a side thing. But uh, overall, that's that's one of the little uh, gotcha moments when you uh, read it. Um, anyway, so yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah, check that out. Um, eventually, we'll do episode fifty. Even if we're like at episode fifty-five by the time we do fifty. Um, and overall, there you go. So, uh, I'm going to keep talking. I got to keep talking. I got to keep uh, spending time, uh, uh, you know, more seconds here. Uh, yeah. All right. Bye, guys. Burp, burp.